I'm Jane McConnell, and welcome to Bowling New Breed. Hi, Chris. I really appreciate your taking the time so early in the morning for you to talk with me. I'd like to start with who you are, a little bit about your company, and how you got into publishing. But first, I'm very curious, since I live in France and you live in Canada, which is mainly English-speaking, how did you get your name, which I would pronounce La Bonté, as the French would. It's a beautiful, beautiful name, sort of like the goodness in you that comes across in the name. How did you get that name? Yeah, it's a lot to live up to. And obviously, yeah, from a French heritage, my first ancestor came to Canada in the late 1600s. So among the first, first immigrants from France to come to the New World, his last name was Clément, but apparently he was a good man, a kind man, and he was given the nickname Clément dit La Bonté. Ah. And so it stuck. So anybody named La Bonté within North America or La Bounty, which the Americans have gone with, they're all my relatives that go back to that first ancestor that came to Quebec in the late 16, I think 1690s, I think. And so, yeah, it's a lot to live up to. So I have to make sure I walk the walk of my name. Yeah, well, that's a, a beautiful story. Could you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you came from, not back several centuries, but you today, no, no. your background, your company, and so on? Yeah, absolutely. I started out actually not in book publishing, but actually in book selling. I had worked for a bookseller here in Vancouver, BC, in Canada, a legendary independent bookseller. And I really learned, started learning the craft of the book industry as, as somebody working on the front line, selling books directly to customers. What are the things that, that book lovers pay attention to? What are they interested in? How do they respond to covers? What's the impact of a blurb on a cover? And how do awards impact sales and stuff like that? And, and then also just started to learn a little bit more about what it's like to be a working professional. So I was did that in my kind of early 20s when I finished university. I had a lit degree, literature degree. I went back to school to do an MFA in creative writing. And when I came out of that, I got a job in book publishing, which was quite unusual. And I was the assistant to the publisher for a publisher that's really strong on, on environmental science, outdoors type stuff here in, in, in Canada, who's grown now to become one of the finest independent book publishers in North America. And then eventually moved on to work for the sister company called Douglas and McIntyre, which was the largest independent book publisher in Canada and one of the largest in North America. And eventually became assistant publisher and then associate publisher. And then I developed a new program for that, that company. And then the company hit bad times. Mm. I was out of work and I took that new program that I was developing for them, this new business line and developed it into what is now figure one publishing launched that uh, almost nine years ago. It's a publishing program that is designed to work directly with individuals and organizations to produce books that are of the highest quality that extend the brand of our clients or individuals and also bring those books to market. And, and by, in terms of marketing, I mean the retail market throughout North America, print, ebook, uh, audiobook sometimes, but also beyond North America to the rest of the world, which as we are doing with your book. So my background is in writing, editing, business management, and now owning uh, my own company, which, like I said, we're just coming up on our, our ninth year. Well, congratulations on your nine years. That's, that's great. Absolutely. I, Chris, I love the fact that you started on the front line with customers. And you talk about the impact of a cover, a title, a blurb. I think... I don't know for a fact, but I think that most publishers today don't have that, what I would say, the terrain, the frontline experience that you do. I think it gives you a big plus, it seems to me. 
It's a huge advantage. And my co-founder and business partner also has that background. So we we bring that to everything we do. One of the challenges with book publishing is there is a level to remove. Uh, we produce books and we don't actually interact with the customer because there is a second level before you get to the client, or the, sorry, to the customer. And then you go through your sales reps and the retailer, but the retailer has direct contact with the consumer. So having that experience has been vitally important. We carry it into everything we do. Right. That's, that's interesting. I'd, I'm curious to know, I've never asked you, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what made you decide to publish the Gig Mindset Advantage? When I sent my, I think I, if I remember correctly, I sent you an email inquiry and with a certain amount of detail, and you responded very fast. Could you tell me what triggered your interest in this project? Yeah, yeah absolutely. The first thing was identifying a book immediately that fit very much into what we were doing. We're really interested in books, particularly business books that are promoting and exploring emerging ideas, new ideas, fresh ideas. So that was that case. So it's just a great fit. The second part was the specifics of the topic. I felt I went, oh, what is a gig mindset? And immediately just looking into what you outlined in your short note was like, oh, I don't think I've seen anything on this yet in in books yet, in, and certainly in, in English book publishing. And, and then the third part of that was your credentials. I mean, it, it's really important that the research you do, your experience, the amount of work you've done, and especially around this subject, those things were all very, very attractive. And I thought I have to reach out to Jane right away. And let's talk about doing a book. Well, that's nice to hear. After I don't forget how many months we've been working together. I, as an Absolutely. author, was uh, surprised to see how long it takes. And it brought a greater awareness in me to the whole process. I published a book I was looking at. I wonder if I can actually show you the, the title here. I was just writing about it to someone oh, yeah. called yeah. L'Avantage Internet pour l'Entreprise. I'm co-author of it. It was in 1996. And it was published by Dunon, one of the top business publishers in France. Yeah. And it was the first book designed for companies that was not technical about the Internet. And it was a big hit. Now... I had no particular relationship with them other than they liked the idea. I and my co-author drafted it, went off to the editor, back and forth a little bit, but not at all the kind of interaction I've had with you and your team. So I have really appreciated the depth that your team has gone into with me, hitting me hard with a lot of comments and suggestions and very strong ideas about how to make changes to improve things. And I think you've got a very good team. Thank you. And we take a lot of pride in 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 making the process as enjoyable as possible. It is a long process and it can be sometimes arduous. Reading about the book and reading drafts, and going back to it just recently in preparation for this discussion, I was reminded of the real importance of what you've done here and what you've identified. And on two ways, in terms of how does an understanding of the gig mindset advantage impact individuals within organizations, um, but also the organizations on a whole. For individuals, it's interesting, and I'll use myself as an example. Um, you know, I started as a bookseller. I was about four or five months into the job. I was just a junior bookseller, cashiers, putting books on shelves, nothing too special. And I don't know where it came from, but I had the audacity to write a proposal to my senior management suggesting a number of things I think they, they could do to make things better. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Just what you want to hear from a new 22-year-old or 24-year-old employee. Right. Uh, but there are ideas like, let's create a special section where we highlight Pulitzer Prize winners. The Giller Prize is a really important prize here in Canada, literary prize. And then internationally, we want to do the Booker. 
So we had a section where they had a, what they call a shelf talker that said Pulitzer Prize winners, Booker Prize winners. And we kept stocking all of the winners from all the years. And it's just a small detail. But what I realized in reading your book is that I have been a gig mindsetter my entire life. And what's a struggle, and you identify this in the book, it's often a struggle for those individuals to find a place in an organization um, because they struggle just to do the job. Uh, they will do the job, but they're also looking for other ways to improve. And another example for me was I just brought forth a proposal when I worked at Douglas and McIntyre. I was the associate publisher. I brought forth the proposal for a brand new imprint. It's really, it was another company. And so there's that entrepreneurial innovative side, right? Which you identify that these gig mindsetters have. They're not just there to do the job. They've got more to offer. And uh, my boss, to his credit, would nurture that at Douglas and McIntyre. And he saw that proposal. And he said, let's do this. Let's build out another division. For individuals to be able to, in reading your book, identify themselves, if, if you're a gig mindsetter and go, oh, it's okay. That I'm allowed to be that. <laughs> How do I function with an organization? How do I communicate in a way that I'm heard? And in some cases, it's probably a case where those individuals, if they aren't heard, they may have to go to a different organization where they are, Absolutely. where that kind of thinking is nurtured. And so that's really important for the individual. For organizations, it's so important for them to be able to create a culture that allows for that kind of thinking, that nurtures those kinds of individuals. You know, not every employee is a gig mindsetter, not by no means, but those that are, those who are, will bring innovation, new ideas. They potentially can be your future managers. They can be your future successor. You think of a smaller company, most small companies won't sell to another company because that's just, it's just not viable. But often if they do sell, they will sell to a junior successor who comes up and they've trained through the ranks. The gig mindsetter, they're often the ones that are both willing and, and ready to take on that kind of that kind of role. So organizations benefit immensely just from if an employee, if the average employee is going to give you one unit of value for their employment, so it's a one-to-one -one ratio, a gig mindsetter is going to give you one and a half, two, three, whatever, depending on mm -hmm. who they are and the environment that you put them in. And for what you're paying the two different employees, the value of the gig mindsetter is clearly far greater. Yes, they may be more difficult to manage in so much as they need more. They need more engagement. They need to be able to implement their ideas and see those ideas implemented. But I think organizations need to become more flexible. It's in their own best interest and find ways to nurture those individuals and really benefit from that. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. I've done a lot of my hands-on advisory work with very large global organizations and there, in many cases, it's a whole different story. You have these layers of hierarchy already, and it's very hard for people to break out of that. But it's happening. It's happening bit by bit. And one thing that I'm going to find out in the current gig mindset survey that's going on is whether or not the pandemic and the lockdown has made a change in terms of how people work. The first survey was in 2018. This one is three years later, plus a pandemic later, although we can't really talk about the pandemic in the past tense yet, but it's a significant period of time and a different experience that people have had. And the survey's ongoing now, so I don't know if there are going to be major differences, but I'm eager uh, to see what comes out of it. Even in large organizations, people working from home, I believe, have started functioning with more autonomy than they did when they were in the office. 
But that's just a gut feeling. You know, we'll see what comes out of the data. I think that's very interesting. I'm really curious to see uh, what you find, the results of that survey. We're certainly seeing it in a number of different places where remote work is a reality. I, I think there's a fear that it's harder to establish, maintain, and nurture your culture if people are separated. I think that while that may seem true, the reality is that we're absolutely capable of learning new skills and new ways of doing things. We're in the process of working on a book that's looking at the importance of emotional intelligence in dealing with these kinds of challenges. And actually, we don't have to see them as blocks. I think that's part of what organizations need to be working on themselves is have the emotional intelligence to recognize these gig mindsetters and understand how they are a special, they truly are a special breed. And I think there's opportunities with the way we work, I think going to be fundamentally changed going forward. We are going to go back to offices, but maybe they're going to be smaller offices, probably smaller office. We're probably going to have a mix of in-office and out-of-office work. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that kind of flexibility, along with the flexibility uh, around how we innovate, it's going to be critically important for the success of organizations and businesses going forward. Yeah. Speaking of organizations going forward, let's lift up one level to industries. And I'm very curious to see how you see the future of the publishing industry and whether or not there have been specific things over the past few years related or not to the pandemic, but things that have caused difficulties or changes in the publishing industry. Yeah, it's an old adage that our industry is always about to die. Um, and that's been for the, the last century, probably. So there's always a bit of a Pollyanna kind of <laughs> the sky is falling mentality to some degree in book publishing. But truth of the matter is books continue to sell at a high rate. But we have lost a lot of our independent booksellers, in part because of Amazon. We can't pretend Amazon is the single most disruptive force in our industry. But the other part, too, is that we had the rise of the superstores, the mega stores, the, the block the big block retailers. In the United States, it was Borders and Barnes and & Noble. In the UK, there's Waterstones. There's a few in the, actually in the UK. And in Canada, it's Chapters Indigo. And they really disrupted the ecosystem of independent book selling. Now, this has been for over 25 years now. I'm trying to think back to the beginning of my business career and my book publishing career. I started in one of the very first of the big box concepts in Canada. Certainly, I think it was the first one in, in British Columbia and here in Vancouver. And since then, others have come up and gone away. But what I've seen in that time is the independent scene, independent retailers for books almost disappear. They're still there, but you have this wonderful ecosystem of people, of smaller stores who knew their customers, who knew what they wanted to read, who bought locally, had relationships with the authors. There was a sensitivity to that. There's an understanding of the ecosystem. So what we have certainly in, again, in terms of the United States, Canada, Australia, UK, I can speak about those countries in particular, is that the independent booksellers have really, really suffered. And as a result, it's really made public book publishing more difficult. Mm. You depend on fewer retailers who have a lot more power to determine margins. They have a lot more power. Uh, you, when you think of a major book, just say in the United States, if you don't get a big buy from Barnes & Noble uh, and a big buy from Amazon, you could be in a lot of trouble. And um, wow. Amazon... Amazon is 50% of the entire market in the United States, 50%. That's ebooks and print. That is way too much power for any single vendor. And publishers have to contend with that. And they're scared. 
uh, especially when Amazon starts doing their own publishing, they have self-publishing uh, mm -hmm. opportunities, or at least for distribution. Uh, the ebook certainly is something that that came out, and we were all a little panicky about the ebook. My former boss Scott McIntyre, I think, wisely pointed out that the ebook would become what the mass market paperback used to be. So it used to be that you would release a book in hardcover, and about a year later, you would get a second kick at the market with the paperback, and usually it'd be a smaller paperback, less expensive. That still happens, but it's very rare now because what we now have is we have the hardcover come out and simultaneously an ebook. Yeah. And for those who wanted the lower cost option, it tends to be the ebook. And those who wanted the print option in their hands, they buy the hardcover. There is no room now in the market for a paperback edition to come. Mm -hmm. Ebooks uh, skyrocket in terms of popularity and sales, and then they plateaued. And we have a sense roughly of what they do. Audiobooks are on the rise, which is in part because of streaming media, the quality of streaming media yeah. and certain categories. And there's still a lot of demand for the print book, uh, especially yeah. in an age where everything is digital. There is some additional cachet in having a print book in hand. Uh, and that's certainly the case for the illustrated books we do. We do high-end art, architecture, cookbooks, but it's also the case for the business books. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of people who want to have that book in hand and get away from their computer, sit down and absorb the content in an old-fashioned way. So the future of book publishing, I think it's going to continue in a lot of ways as it has been. All indicators suggest that the book is not going away which is exciting. Sales were up last year and certain categories more than others because of the pandemic. Books on homeschooling, clearly, uh, especially in North America. So we're optimistic for our industry, even though, again, the sky is always falling. Um, <laughs> and we're always looking for new ways to do things better. Well, that's a very positive note. I think we're going to close on, Chris. Thank you very much for your perspective. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank uh, you again. Yeah, I, I would love to have that conversation, and, and I can't wait. We're only just around the corner until your book is officially launched. I can't wait to share this with the world. Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you again for all your help and the help of your team. And thank all of you who are listening. I hope to see you all soon on the next episode, and invite you to check out the website oldnewbreed.com. You'll see the future episodes coming up, and you can catch up on past ones you might have missed. Thank you all and see you soon.